0: I am really happy that we're able to get together for questions and answers. And I'll tell you that uh, I don't have a whole lot to go on at the beginning. So if you've got something that's marinating in your head right now that you really want to hear answered, I encourage you to text your questions into this number, 205 699 2447. And uh, I was thinking as I was sitting there during the song service and maybe some folks at home watching, uh, you should know that you can text in just as well from home as you can uh, from a pew right here. So uh, we would love to have all your questions. And I'll try to go at a slower pace here uh, tonight to give Patrick a chance to type them in. We had leftover questions I didn't know about, but I was powering through so fast uh, he couldn't keep up typing. So that's what happened last week. We'll try to do a better job. I was a little out of practice, so I have no excuses tonight. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, So we start with this one. I'm thinking this probably came from what we talked about this morning. Uh, We had a lesson on baptism this morning, and I mentioned briefly John's baptism. And the question was, was John's baptism for the remission of sins? Remission means forgiveness. So When people were baptized by John, uh, were they baptized for the forgiveness of sins then as we are now with Christian baptism? That's a good question because in Acts 19 when uh, Paul encountered those disciples from Ephesus and they told him that they'd only been baptized with John's baptism, uh, Paul said something like, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. And he didn't say forgiveness of sins or remission of sins there. And so many times what I hear when people refer to John's baptism is they call it simply a baptism of repentance, which it was, but it was more than that. And uh, I think Paul was using shorthand the fullest description of John's baptism that we have is in Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And that's where the answer to this question lies. Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, which says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river, in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So the sinful past of the candidates for baptism was definitely uh, part of what was going on. They were confessing their sins and John was preaching the forgiveness of sins. What that means, what that implies, is that those who were baptized with John's baptism, such as many of the apostles, did not need to receive Christian baptism on the establishment of the church. Their sins had been forgiven by a baptism that was appropriate for the time. It was a transitional time. And uh, they, they did not receive a second baptism Uh, but everyone going forward would need Christian baptism. So John's baptism is an interesting study, uh, but it was for the remission of sins. Why was Abraham considered living a long life at 175 years, but others in the time were living several hundred years? Well, by Abraham's day, I don't know of any cases of anyone living several hundred years. Interestingly enough, all of those multi century uh, people who lived, you know, 800, 900 years even, lived prior to the flood. It seems that the flood had something to do with shorter lifespans. And from the flood on, you start seeing shorter and shorter lives until you get to a lifespan very similar to our own. And so uh, Abraham did live a long life at 175 years by his day's standards because after the flood people to my knowledge didn't live more than 150 years or more why is jacob's daughter never talked about well the story of jacob's daughter uh, after her birth is mentioned is recorded in genesis chapters 34 and 35 uh, as far as we know he just had one daughter and he had all, she had all those brothers so you can infer that she had a very difficult life growing up, uh, but she did have a lot of people to boss around, so there's a trade-off there for her. Her name was Dinah, and uh, there are only two chapters in the Bible that, that really talk about Dinah's story. Really, it's just one chapter, and then you see the fallout of what happened with her. And one of the reasons that you don't hear a lot of sermons about Dinah is because her, her story is, is very sensitive. It's very sensitive material. It's not something that really we talk about in a general assembly, but uh, we are actually, and I'm not trying to pitch my class or anything, but we're talking about Dinah in my class next week as we're studying the life of Jacob, and also there are some free copies of the book we're studying back there, uh, *Favored favored that have a whole chapter devoted to Dinah. I know it looks like I put this question in here to pitch my book, but uh, that's not what's going on here. I'm just making the point that uh, Dinah is talked about, but not that often because there's not a lot of information about her and her story uh, handles some very sensitive issues. Let's see, next question. Genesis chapter 6 verse 9 says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. Does this mean he never sinned? No, it doesn't. Uh, This term blameless is used also of uh, Job. And it's used of us after we become Christians. And we know the Bible teaches that after we are converted to Christ, we will still fail, we will still sin. First John chapter one, verse nine. John is writing to Christians. And or actually verse 8, he says, "If we say we haven't sinned, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us." But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John is writing to Christians who have been called blameless in Christ. So blameless doesn't mean free from sin. Blameless means that before the judgment seat of God at the last day, we won't be held accountable for our sins because of God's great mercy. And in the Christian age, we learn, because of the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. He paid the debt that we owe so that we can be blameless. We know that Noah had flaws. After the flood, uh, he became drunk and uh, some bad things happened uh, as a result. And so even in the inspired record, which only tells just a small portion of Noah's life, uh, Noah is shown to, to have his flaws as we all do. So that's not what blameless means let's go on to the next hopefully that doesn't mean we're finished Uh uh-oh so we need some questions folks Uh, what can i talk about while i wait on you to give us questions this has never happened in the history of Asheville road Uh, don't want to talk about donna anymore oh here we go all right y'all be tech this is the only time i want you to text in church okay text some questions why did God want the Israelites to wipe out other nations in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament He wants everyone to have a chance at heaven? Wow, that's a tough question. What do we do with um, what seems to be an irreconcilable difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Some people say it looks like two different gods. The God of the Old Testament seems to be a very different wrathful God from the God of the New Testament. But the only way you arrive at that conclusion is by only concentrating on portions of the Old Testament and only concentrating on portions of the New Testament. If you read the whole account, it's consistent that God is who he is. You see the same God in the Old and New Testament. So what do I mean by that? Well, parts of the Old Testament that are being ignored are the parts where God reveals His name, His identity. And you see Him as compassionate and forgiving and wanting everyone to be saved. great example of this is in uh, the, book of, the book of Exodus. You go over to chapter 34 when God reveals... Himself to Moses look at Exodus 34 verse 6 the Lord the Lord a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children the children's children to the third and fourth generation well, if you didn't know better, and you just heard that, and you had this assumption that the God of the Old Testament is wrathful, and the God of the New Testament is loving, and I gave you a pop quiz, and I said, which, which testament did that come out of? You might say, well, that came out of the New Testament. That's the Old Testament, early in the Old Testament. Same God. Over in the New Testament, you have a lot of information about hell and everlasting punishment. I mean, it's one thing... To be killed in this life jesus says don't fear those who have the power to destroy the body fear him who destroys both body and soul in hell matthew chapter 10 verse 28 now if i just read that out of context and ask you which testament you might say well that's the old testament no that's from the new testament out of the lips of jesus christ himself so it's the same god but in the New Testament, he doesn't tell us to go fight wars in the name of Jesus. And in the Old Testament, while he does express his desire to forgive, uh, there, are, there is a death penalty for his own people. Uh, many of the Ten Commandments come with the death penalty. And there are wars that are fought. Uh, now, if you want a lot of information on this, we taught on this in a class called Peacemakers. I can't tell you exactly which video it is, but you can scroll around on YouTube and find where we did a whole class on the wars of the Old Testament and gave some justification for it. It's a difficult subject because it was uh, wars that were fought for total conquest. Uh, But some things to consider is that these cultures that Israel was told to fight, these cultures were completely and utterly corrupt. They were sacrificing children. So it gotten to the point of self-destruction. And there seemed to be no way out. Another thing that we talked about is God knows all. And sometimes we just can't understand his ways. And I think you have to consider that as well when you look at the wars of the Old Testament. But also you have to understand that this world is just a sliver of, of what life is. And eternity is so much more. And God looks at our lives and the way the world is in terms of eternity, not in terms of the conditions of earth right now. He wants us to be happy, but the overall desire is for us to be in a relationship with him. And I really believe if you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you'll see that's the overpowering theme in both Testaments. Where are dinosaurs and cavemen on the biblical timeline? Cavemen aren't in the Bible because the Bible says that the first human being that was created on day six was an intelligent human being and not some missing link. Uh, The missing links are not found in the Bible and uh, despite many claims to the contrary, they're not found in archaeology either. Scientists have a lot of desire to look for cavemen, as they're called, because then they can prove evolution. Uh, they have a big problem because we don't have any links between apes and humans, for example, uh, to show that evolution has occurred. It remains a theory. It remains something that is being tested, and because it's supposedly occurring over billions of time, there, billions of years of time. There's no way to test it. So first of all, no cavemen in the Bible, because the Bible says that the human beings, uh, the first humanoids, whatever you want to call them, were intelligent and very much like you and I. The dinosaurs, however, a different matter. Now the Bible is not clear about dinosaurs, but there are some passages that that suggest the possibility of dinosaurs living simultaneously with human beings, which also is damaging to the theory of evolution. And the main texts that people go to are Job chapters 40 and 41, the passages of Scripture that talk about the behemoth and the leviathan. Those terms, behemoth and leviathan, are unfamiliar to us, and we don't use them commonly outside of those two chapters because they're Hebrew terms We don't know how to translate. All we have are the poetic descriptions of those two creatures, and we just know that they're very large, they're very fearsome, and they appear to be creatures that we're not around anymore today. Some people say, well, it's a hippo and it's a crocodile. But you read the descriptions. I won't take the time to do it tonight. It sounds like something much bigger and badder than a hippo and a leviathan. Um, We can't be 100% sure, which is what you would expect with references to dinosaurs, since we don't have them in modern times. Were they wiped out in the flood? Possibly. Were they wiped out in the time period after the flood, when the world underwent so much change? Was it due to some natural calamity? We just don't know. But we don't deny that dinosaurs existed. Uh, They're clearly representing the fossil record, unlike the cavemen. And... uh, If they existed, then they were created in the six days of creation and became extinct like the dodo bird or other things. What should my view on the various types of Christian churches be? I'm going to go forward here and assume that various types of Christian churches is a reference to denominations. And your view should be what Jesus' view is which is his prayer in John chapter 17 verse 21 that all his disciples be one now a denomination is a subdivision of christianity it's a group that says we're going to give ourselves a name in addition to the names in the bible so that we can uh, have a separate identity from christianity as a whole and they usually line up with some kind of distinguishing characteristic like a personality In the Lutheran church, which is named after the followers of Martin Luther. Or uh, a leadership style, such as in the Episcopalian church. Episcopal comes from a Greek word episkopos, which means bishop. Those are bishop-led churches. Presbyterian comes from the Greek word presbyteros, which means elder. Those are elder-led churches to be distinguished from bishop-led churches. Uh, They may come after some distinguishing uh, practice like the Methodist Church that followed the methods of John Wesley or the Baptist Church that began immersing, uh, baptizing, that is, uh, in a time when most people were pouring or sprinkling. So these names are meant to divide us. And so our position should be that of Jesus' is that we all be one and not wear any names that divide us. That is no names that aren't given for the church in general in the New Testament. Uh, that's not just the position of Jesus. It was also the position of his disciples. You can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where the church was divided along personality lines. I am of Cephas, I am of Apollos, I am of Paul, I am of Christ. And he had all these different denominations forming within the church at Corinth. And Paul says that there should be no divisions among you. A denomination is a division. So our view on the various types... Of Christian churches should be that there is no type of Christian church in the New Testament there is only the church there is one body Ephesians 4 4 through 6 the body is the church uh, the body of Christ should not be divided and the only way to prevent division and denominationalism and types of churches is just to follow the New Testament try to be the church that you read about in the New Testament can, be, can being baptized ever be a bad decision? Well, uh, I'm assuming the person asking this question has thought of at least one scenario in which it is a bad decision. So, um, I'm trying to think of where this might be coming from. It could be a bad decision, number one, if it's the wrong kind of baptism, if it's a baptism that you don't read about in the New Testament. Number two, it could be the wrong kind it could be a bad decision. If it's a baptism that used to be right, but is no longer the right baptism. Uh, such as John's baptism and the men we read about in Ephesians 19 uh, this morning. They'd received John's baptism after the death of Jesus, when John's baptism was obsolete. And so that's why Paul told them to be baptized again. Now, to say they made a bad decision, they, they made the best decision they knew how, given the information they had. And so I you know, don't want to challenge their motives in saying bad decision, but in terms of uh, it being the wrong baptism for the time, it was a bad decision. It could be a bad decision if you're just doing it because everyone else is doing it. Or if you're too young to really understand what you're doing and understand right from wrong and... And sin it's really though the best decision you could ever make and so I'm so happy Danny's here tonight Uh, we we were thrilled to witness Danny's baptism this morning and I have 100% certainty that that was a good decision how do we defend that David and Jonathan were just friends when the world tells us that they were the first recorded gay couple well the reason the world says that is because they have to. They think they want to retrofit today's culture into ancient culture. This was not something that was claimed until recently when the LGBT movement came on so strong. So they go back to 1 Samuel 18 and they make these claims. Now, let's put a couple passages together to see if we can shed some light on this relationship. 1 Samuel 18, here's the relationship of Jonathan and David described in biblical terms. And I believe this is a passage that people go to to try to, to say that this was a gay couple. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So nowadays, if two men love each other, well, they're gay. But everything wasn't about, and I'm sorry to speak so bluntly and plainly, but this is something we have to talk about today. The world is speaking this way, so we have to. But in those days, every relationship wasn't about sex. Today, we try to make every relationship about sex. So if two men love each other, why? They must be in a marriage or something like that. That's not at all what was going on. Both of these men were married to women. They were not married to one another. Another thing is, this is friendship described in biblical terms. To understand that, go back to Deuteronomy 13, and an incidental statement is made here that actually gives the best definition I know of 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 a friendship. Look at Deuteronomy 13, beginning in verse 6. Uh, The context here isn't to define friendship, but as I said, Moses incidentally gives us a really great definition of friendship. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known, and this goes on, you can see what he says, uh, you know, you should, that person should be punished, even if your friend is the one enticing you to commit idolatry you punish that friend even if your wife does that but notice how he describes a friend he describes a friend as one who is as your own soul so in those days in israel that's how friends were viewed their souls were knit together friends loved one another and you see how that's distinguished from the wife of your embrace which that is an in, uh, euphemism of intimacy that's distinguished from friendship. So the terminology used in 1 Samuel 18:1 is consistent with the terminology of the Torah, or the Pentateuch, or the books of Moses, whatever you want to call it, in Deuteronomy 13:6, which have some of the strongest condemnations of homosexual activity that you find in the Bible. You can look at Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22. Why is John 1334 skipped over so much, even though it's an inspirational message? Well, let's not skip over it tonight. Let's go over and read it. Um, there's a lot of Bible here, by the way, to cover, so um, give me time. I'll get around to John 13:34 if I haven't been preaching on it. Well, this is now come on, guys, I talk about this verse. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It may be that this person is saying, in practice, we skip over this. Uh, We are not living this as we should. And it is a very inspirational message. And what does it say? Number one, people should know that you're a Christian by the way you love others especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, they might know you by the doctrine you live by, by your morality, by your uh, repentance, by your worship styles, and these things we emphasize a lot. But number one, the new commandment is that you love one another, and by this shall all people know that you are Jesus' disciples, your love for one another. There's a story told by one of the second-century apologists uh, that the agnostics, the atheists, the the pagans of the Roman era who persecuted Christians, their hearts were changed when they saw the way they took care of each other, and they often were found to exclaim, but look how they love one another. And that should still be the case for us today. Why would some Jews decide to stay in Babylon when their captivity was over instead of returning to Jerusalem? Well, Daniel was one of these. And uh, let me just ask you, have you ever been 80 years old? Okay. At that point in your life, you don't feel like moving countries. Right? So Daniel uh, stayed, to the best of our knowledge, in Babylon even after it was taken over by Persia, and Cyrus the Great released the Jews. There were Jewish colonies in Babylon that continued, that persisted. Uh, There were Jewish colonies in Egypt that persisted. And, of course, many of them returned to Jerusalem. It was hard to go back and rebuild. Read Ezra and Nehemiah. There there were many hardships. Uh, The prophet Zechariah talked about how the old men who had lived through the captivity would weep when they got back and they saw how difficult times were and how small the new temple would be, etc. Add to that that in Jeremiah's time of the captivity, he told the people of Israel who were in Babylonian captivity to build houses there, to make lives for themselves there, to pray for that government there, and to live as if it were their homeland. Uh, that's not without predicting a return, but many people had set up shop and they had their own uh, fig tree and vineyard. That was kind of a, a phrase of settled life. They, every man had his own fig tree and vineyard in Babylon. They'd been there 70 years. So maybe you moved away from home when you were young, and spent 70 years somewhere, uh, it's home now. You know, your heart may be with your, your ultimate home, but your life is in a new place. It's like uh, Bob Curry. You know, y- y- y'all know Bob. He's from New Jersey. But he's lived in Alabama for 75 years. And he doesn't like for people to call him a Yankee because he's lived in Alabama longer than most of us. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he's, he's not going back to New Jersey. And uh, many people stayed in Babylon uh, because they had settled in. Is First Peter 5, 7 instruction for everyone or just the elders? Let's go to First Peter 5, 1. 1. Peter 5 begins talking to the elders. There's some very good instructions there about being examples to the flock. But he shifts gears when he starts turning to those who are younger in verse 5. Just as the elders should remember that the chief shepherd is going to come and that is when they'd receive an unfading crown of glory, he says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. There's some disagreement there over what elders means in that section, whether he's still talking about the official elders, the office of elders, or elders in terms of just older people. Uh, For the purposes of this question, I just want you to see that he shifted over to the younger there. And now he's speaking more generally when he gets to clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. So he's in that vein of all of you when he gets to verse 7, which says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Uh, So we all have that promise. Thankfully, the elders do because they certainly need it, but the rest of us do too. Since baptism was happening in Nicodemus' day, did he really not understand Jesus' words on being born of water and the Spirit, or was he just being argumentative? Well, the purposes for baptism were not plain to Nicodemus, and uh, he was not being argumentative, but he was puzzled by what Christ was saying. Now, let's go back, because some of you may not recall that conversation Jesus is speaking figuratively of birth in terms of uh, the new birth in Christ. Nicodemus comes in by night. He says to Jesus in verse 2 of John 3, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Julie, Julie, she's here tonight, but she's not in John 3. Jesus answered him, Maybe I put Jesus and truly together, I don't know. But he starts out saying, truly, truly, I say to you, Julie's always on my mind, even when I'm up here. (laughs) Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now he's a member of the Sanhedrin. And so we know Nicodemus doesn't really think Jesus is suggesting this. So maybe the word argumentative is appropriate for what he is doing, but he's coming impressed by Jesus also. And so I, I've always taken Nicodemus' statement here to be tell me more. I know you're speaking in a metaphor, but I don't understand the symbolism here. Born again. So that's when Jesus gives some details. What I mean is born of water, not physical birth, not natural birth, born of water and of the Spirit. Now, water would have told him that baptism was part of the new birth, along with the being led by the Spirit. And so, uh, let's get back to the question. He, he didn't understand that the new birth required these two things until Jesus spelled that out for him. I don't think he was just being argumentative. I think he was wanting some clarification, which Jesus was happy to give him. What was Paul's purpose in purifying himself and the four other men in Acts 21, verses 20 through 26? Uh, That is a long passage, so I'm going to try to summarize what's going on. Paul learns that they are planning to arrest him when he comes to Jerusalem, to deliver the humanitarian aid he's been collecting uh, from the Gentile churches on behalf of the poor saints in Judea. And he doesn't want to cancel the trip. This contribution is very important. He's spent a lot of time collecting it. The people need it. And so he decides to go, and he is advised, and he took the advice, to pay for the vow that four other men are taking and to go through the Jewish rites of purification with them to show that he is not anti-Jew. Now, Paul had been raised as a Jew. He had been trained as a rabbi at the feet of Gamaliel. And the accusations that were going against him were that Paul is against the temple, he's against the city of Jerusalem, he's against the people of the Jews. He's against the Jewish way of life, against the Jewish traditions. And so his motive for doing this was to show that he wasn't anti-Jew in an ethnic term, but but that the Jewish people were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that Jesus fulfilled the Old Covenant. Now, that's a very different thing from saying that Jesus is against the Old Covenant. A lot of people think Jesus came to oppose the Old Covenant. He made it clear in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 18 and 19, He did not come to destroy the law and prophets, but to fulfill them, to accomplish them. Uh, It was all about him. And so if you're about Christ, you're not against the Jews. The real debate here on Acts 21, when Paul takes this vow and pays for the the other men, is whether or not Paul sinned. And uh, there are many people who are quick to Accuse Paul of committing a sin by going back to some obsolete Jewish practice here. But I don't think so. I mean, you read Paul's letters. He was very clear about how the Old Testament had, had passed away and fulfilled his purpose. And uh, he wasn't caving here. I, I think he was very bold and going in the first place. Um, but there is definitely a lot of uh, speculation in there and room for debate. Two related questions. How are we supposed to take the Lord's Supper? Let me take a look at the next one to see where we're going here. In 1 Corinthians 11, 27, it says that whoever takes the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner will be guilty. Can you expand on this? Well, recall the circumstances in 1 Corinthians 11. The circumstances, if you want to turn over there, is that when they were gathered together, verse 20, it was not to take the Lord's Supper. It was not the Lord's Supper that they were eating uh, they were eating a common meal and in the common meal they were making divisions remember big problem in Corinth was division they were dividing uh, between the rich and the poor they were getting drunk at this meal and they weren't taking the Lord's Supper and so Paul sets out to correct this he repeats what he received from the Lord which we see in the Gospel accounts of how on the night he was arrested, they went to the upper room, and during the Passover feast, he instituted the Christian feast of the Lord's Supper, where the unleavened bread represented his body, and the fruit of the vine represented his blood. And so, after giving that, he says, as often as you eat this bread, verse 26, and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore First of all, if you read on below the passage on the unworthy manner, you'll see that what he's asking them to do specifically is to discern the body. You see that? If you drink without discerning the body, verse 29, you drink judgment on yourself. So that would be what an unworthy manner is, to drink without discerning the body. Now in the chapter before, in chapter 10, he draws a connection between communion and the one body of Christ. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse, f- verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? The Greek word is koinonia, fellowship in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So he's saying the Lord's Supper should remind you of the death of Jesus, but also of the one body. That's why we come together to take it. It's different from other elements of worship. This was, you know, something came up during COVID when we all broke up. You know, how do we take the Lord's Supper the way we're supposed to in this environment? Well, in my judgment, we really couldn't. We're supposed to come together and take it. And, uh, you know, a pandemic kept us from doing that for a short period of time. We came back as soon as we possibly could and uh, began taking the Lord's Supper together again because part of the Lord's Supper is the communal aspect of it. So in context, to take it in an unworthy manner is to do so with, with uh, divisive motives in your heart, without reconciling your, reconciling your differences with your brother or sister in Christ, while sowing discord and um, judging others as less than you, and so on. Jealousy and envy in your heart, that would be an unworthy manner. I think applications can be made beyond that to uh, continuing a life of sin and coming and taking the Lord's Supper, uh, living one way on Sunday and living a completely different way on Monday, Tuesday, and the days following. The main thing is discerning the body, the one body. We are one. We are united. If people ask what type of church I go to, how shall I answer? If I say Church of Christ, does that make it sound denominational? Well, unfortunately, uh, the term Church of Christ is used in a denominational way all the time, even by us, and so it, it clouds the issue. I think the best thing to remember is that Church of Christ is not a denominational name. And so you don't talk about, I'm Church of Christ, or he's a Church of Christ preacher, or this is Church of Christ teaching. You say, I'm a Christian. What kind of a Christian are you? I'm not a kind of a Christian. I'm just a Christian. Okay? Uh, Is that Baptist teaching? Is that Church of Christ teaching? It's Bible teaching. You see a church, were you baptized by a Church of Christ preacher? I was baptized by a gospel preacher. And if you can just get that kind of denominational language out, you're going to raise a lot of eyebrows and you're going to have a lot of ears perk up because people don't talk like that, not in our part of the world. It's hard for us to speak this way. You have to practice this because we live in a world that is full of denominationalism. And I think we're... You know, as guilty as anybody else of turning the churches of Christ into a denomination we have to fight that and just go back to the Bible but we're not a denomination you know a denomination has a hierarchical structure here's one example a denomination would uh, answer to a board or something above the congregational level uh, some places are you know multiple churches are ruled by a bishop And that bishop is ruled by an archbishop and so on. But there's no one above, no one but Christ above our four elders here at this local congregation. We're locally organized, independent. Uh, There's a lot of variety across the churches of Christ. Some of it's good in matters of discretion. And a a lot of it, sadly, is bad because there there, there are false things going on in terms of matters of faith. But we can't go over to a church that we disagree with and we have no authority over them. We can't go to a convention and vote on whether or not churches should allow women to preach or instrumental music in worship because we don't have any authority over another church that may be practicing those things. So we're not a denomination and we don't need to use denominational language to describe ourselves. I'm going to keep going if it's okay because I'm not going to get to do this for a while is the prayer of an elder more effective than any other christian well it's different it comes from a different place when that elder is acting in the capacity of an elder but i think it's more proper to say in the context of james 5 that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective and perhaps more effective than the prayer of someone who is spiritually immature And that's why the elders are called in generally as a rule. Uh, We should do this more. I don't know if you realize this, but our elders meet every Sunday morning before Bible class to pray, to pray for this church, to pray for you. And uh, that's something that is really special. And when an elder prays, it's like he brings the whole congregation with him in that prayer. And that's something that an elder does as a shepherd that's different than anything the rest of us can do. Um, But if you continue reading James, you can see the point in verse 16 and 17 is that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. All right, so we got through our questions tonight. I hope that I was able to answer everybody's question that came in. Uh, Sorry I went a little over time, but... uh, I enjoy this. I hope that you got something out of it as well. We're going to extend the the invitation. Andrew selected a song for us to sing. And the invitation is, is open tonight, as it was this morning, as it always is. Maybe you want to put on Christ in baptism and become a Christian. Start your walk with Christ today. Maybe you need some help in that regard. You need the prayers of this church. We'd love to have an elder pray for you this evening. All you need to do is take a step and come forward tonight, right now, as we stand together and as we sing.